You are listening to The Holly Hall Show. Every week, Holly will discuss global news, her unique views, interview amazing guests, and often with an astrological twist. Holly has over seven years' experience as a talk show host and 23 years' experience as an astrologer and dream analyst. Sit back, relax, and enjoy another intriguing and informative hour here on A to Zen FM. Now, here's your host, Holly Hall. Hello, everyone. How are you today? Ah, I was hoping to hear the uh, song, What's Love Got to Do, Got to Do With It? <laughs> we had it queued up, but we'll play it in the next break. Because today we are talking, and I don't sing it as good as Tina Turner, sorry. I don't have her legs either. <laughs> today we're talking to the most amazing guest. I am so excited. I first discovered her on TED TV. If you've got the internet, you can go to tedtv.com, I think, or it's ted.tv, either one. All you have to do is Google TED TV and you'll find it. That's where I first discovered her. Actually on Netflix, though, so I watched her on the big screen. And uh, you're probably wondering who she is. It's Helen Fisher, Dr. Helen Fisher. Most of you know how passionate I am about love and relationships, especially when I talk about astrology. You know I have a psychology background and a philosophy background. And everything that Helen Fisher about, and you can find her at HelenFisher.com, I resonated with. I was just like, I fell in love with her. <laughs> Because she has many books as well, too. Now, I want to give you a bit of a sneak peek of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about why we love the nature and the chemistry of romantic love and ever wonder why him or why her. She wrote a book, Why Him, Why Her. Have you ever wondered why? She's featured on Oprah Magazine, National Geographic, Today, Time, Psychology, Today, TV, TED TV, sorry, and Helen E. Fisher, Ph.D., biological anthropologist, is a research professor in the Department of Anthropology, boy, I've got a (laughs) tongue twisters, at Rutgers, or it might be Rutgers, I'll have her correct me, University. She has written five books on evolution and the future of human sexuality, monogamy, which we're going to talk about, adultery, and divorce, which I find very fascinating, gender differences in the brain, the chemistry of romantic love, and most recently, human personality types and why we fall in love with one person rather than another. In fact, if you go to her website, HelenFisher.com, you can do a little test on who is the right one for you. She talks about lust, the sex drive, the libido, romantic attraction, romantic love, attachment, deep feelings of union with a long-term partner. Now, without further ado, I want to bring on Helen Fisher because I know 55 minutes is not going to be enough to talk about this interesting topic. Hello, Helen. How are you today? I'm just fine. How are you? I'm great. As you can see, I'm quite passionate about your work. Wonderful. Well, so am I. <laughs> it's a good topic. Hear. It's evergreen. <laughs> it is, you know, and I do want to get, I want the audience to get a little glimpse inside of the mind of Helen Fisher. So um, outside of the educational PhD, Helen Fisher, just to find out how you got to the passion um, to get where you are today, even before you even started educating yourself 
on this subject. Is there anything personal, you growing up, your childhood, your teenage life or early adulthood that brought you to the point that you are right now that you're passionate about? Oh, Holly, well, all kinds of things, I'm sure. But, you know, looking back on it, I think probably the most, you know, I really deal with how we're all alike. I mean, I study things like romantic love, and you find it around the world, the sex drive, you certainly find it around the world, deep feelings of attachment, the drive to form pair bonds. These are things that we all experience. Uh, They're deeply embedded in the human brain. And I think probably I'm interested in why we're all alike, because I'm an identical twin, and ah, as a small child, you know, even, you know, uh, twins always get the same questions. I mean, uh, you know, do you have the same cavities in your teeth? Do you have the same friends? Do you like the same food? Do you have ESP? Uh, do you think alike? And so mm-hmm. long before I knew there was any issue about the nature-nurture controversy and how much of your behavior was learned and how much of it was biological, I was very busy, even as a very small child, you know, sort of uh, trying to figure out how much of my behavior I shared with my identical twin sister. And so it was very natural to me to think about those parts of human nature that we share, all of us together. And I think that's what drove me. And then again, of course, you know, I mean, I was a teenager. I was a teenager like all teenagers, and I was very interested in sex and love. And when it came time to write my Ph.D. dissertation, I I felt that, um, you know, our human patterns of sex and love would be most likely to have evolved and have a strong evolutionary and genetic component because, you know, if you don't fall in love and if you don't have sex, you're not going to have babies and you're not going to pass your DNA on to tomorrow. So I basically figured that uh, that if I studied uh, romantic love, deep feelings of attachment, evolution of pair bonding and monogamy, those were the kinds of things that I would find um, evolutionary explanations for uh, and things that we all shared. So I think just those two things, the fact that I was a basic teenager interested in second love, and I'm an identical twin. So did you discover what the difference was between you and your sibling or what the similarities were between you and yeah, your sibling, a, if there was any? Oh, my goodness. There's, I've never <laughs> met two people who are alike. There's uh, there's no two people on this planet that are alike. Uh, um, oh. Even identical twins are not alike. And... Uh, um, sure. You know, I mean, I think uh, my clearest understanding, my, her, her name is Lorna and I'm mm-hmm. Helen. And, uh, uh, I think, uh, my clearest understanding of some of the differences and similarity actually comes from my newest work because in terms of romantic love, uh, and sex drive, we're very similar, but, uh, my newest work, you know, is, is, is in the study of personality and there certainly are some differences, but here's the way we're, we're both alike. Um, I'm um I've written five books. I'm an anthropologist. I spend a great deal of time uh in the lab and and writing books and reading. And she's a hot air balloon pilot. So um and a painter. So she gets up at three in the morning and checks the weather and then brings people up into a tiny little basket uh in Aspen, Colorado or in Switzerland. And so it looks like we're very different in terms of what we do every day. Absolutely. But the similarities are that we can both tolerate risk. Um, I walk on national television and talk about the evolution of adultery, and she takes people up in a tiny little basket so we can both tolerate risk. Uh, there's a real psychological component in what I do, trying to understand why you fall in love with one person rather than another. And, of course, in when as a balloon pilot, she's got to really cope with people's fear uh, in the basket, et cetera. So 
We're similar in our ability to tolerate risk. We both have a tremendous sense of adventure. She, we both um, have gone to a lot of countries around the world, uh, um, you know, just hanging around to see what's going on. Uh, we're both enormously curious. We're curious about the same kinds of things. We both love the theater. We both love biography. But we're also very curious about different things. I mean, I put people in brain scanners, and she's a she's an artist who interviews uh, natives in the jungles of uh, Amazonia to to find out uh, what's driving them to be artists themselves. So basically, we're both curious, but we seem to be curious about often different things. We're both adventurers, but we adventure in different ways. We both have the same sex drive, but yet we choose different kinds of men. Um, we both work alone. Um, uh, we both, well, she's a, she's a painter, so she, um, moves tiny little brush strokes along, around for hours and hours, and I'm a writer, so I move tiny little words around for hours. So basically, it looks very different, but some of the temperament is very similar. Yeah, it does. I can I can definitely hear the similarity too. I mean, obviously you're both driven and you're both authentic to yourselves. You've both pursued what you wanted for yourselves. That's you know, wonderful. So which, That's I actually yeah. didn't list those things. That's good. I thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can see Yeah, all we of are that. authentic to ourselves. Neither of us yeah. work in um in an office where what, I mean, not that those people these, yeah. <laughs> Pardon me? Or what mom and dad said you should do. Yeah, well, actually, they were adventurers, too, so that really wasn't a problem. But, but, um, you know, neither of us work in a a hierarchical, um, um, uh, you know, environment like the office where there's very set jobs and set time you're supposed to show up and set kinds of things to wear and with a a Mm -hmm. level of command. Neither of us did that. Uh, We both work for ourselves. We've both made our own living. Um, you know, rather than marrying well, not that that isn't a good idea, but we didn't happen to do that. Uh, um, and so, uh, yes, I, I would say that we are authentic to ourselves. That's a lovely idea. Thank you. You're welcome. So I wanted to talk to you about the video. This is what, I mean, the, the, um, the, the speaker uh, corner, I guess, so to speak, that you did on TED TV, which was February 28, uh, 2008, which was the brain that the the brain in love and yeah. i found it very interesting you named three specific parts of the brain in love and i'm wondering if you could visually give uh, my audience what you were talking about that day and the three different you, you might have more but i remember three different aspects you talked about the brain in love one of them was um the sex drive the, the sex drive and the desire yeah. i think you compared yeah. it to wanting a piece of chocolate and right. that type of thing yeah I think that we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive, the craving for sexual gratification. The second brain system is the brain system for romantic love, that elation, the giddiness, the euphoria, the obsessive thinking, the craving, the possessiveness for a particular individual. And I think that the third brain system is deep feelings of attachment, that sense of calm and cosmic union that you can feel for a long-term partner. And I think that these three different brain systems um, evolve for different reasons. I think that the sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners. I mean, you can feel a sex drive when you're just driving along in your car. It's not necessarily focused on anybody. Or when yeah, you're I don't need a partner, yeah. Uh, or watching a movie. But uh, I think romantic love evolved to enable you to focus your mating energy on just one individual at a time. That's a very focused thing. I mean, you you can't be in love without being in love with somebody. 
And I think the third brain system of attachment evolved to enable you to tolerate this human being, to stick with them at least long enough to raise a child together as a team. So I think we've all evolved all three brain systems. Um, I and my colleagues have now put geez, almost over 75 people into a brain scanner and studied the brain circuitry of romantic love, uh, the second of the three brain systems. Other people have studied the, the brain circuitry of the sex drive. And I've written actually whole books on um, the evolution of attachment, that third brain system. But what we're really known for is now is put, having put over 75 people who were madly in love into the brain scanner. And the first group were 17 people who had just fallen happily in love. They were very happily in love. The second group were 15 people who had just been rejected in love. That was hard. Oh, boy, they're really struggling. And a third group were men and women in their 50s and 60s who maintained, uh, all married, all maintained, uh, all married an average of 21 years and all maintained that they were still in love with their partner, not just loving them, but in love with their partner. And we put them in the brain scanner too. So uh, we've gone on now to study newlyweds and we will continue to study older people, etc. But we're trying to map the brain circuitry of one of these three brain systems, the basic brain system for intense romantic love. So is there a difference between in love and romantic love? Do you have to have romantic love to be in love? I think Can you the have romantic thing. love and not be in love? <laughs> I, I, I think um, they're basically the same term for mm. uh, uh, different terms for the same thing. I think infatuation, if you actually look up the word infatuation, it describes the, the intense feelings of romantic love. I think being in love, passionate love, romantic love, and infatuation are all basically the same brain system. And there's a certain number of characteristics of it. I mean, the the first thing that happens when you fall madly in love with somebody is that person takes on what I call special meaning. Uh, You know, George Bernard Shaw once said, he said, love consists of overestimating the differences between one woman and another. And indeed, we do. Suddenly, every single thing about them is special. I mean, their car is different from every other car in the parking lot the house they live in, the street they live on, um, the clothes they wear, the music that they like, the books they read, the job that they everything about them is special. Mm-hmm. And then you focus on them. And this is the dopamine system in the brain. You focus on them. Before I put people in this brain scanner, I would ask them, what do you not like about your partner? And they could list what they didn't like, but then they would sweep that aside and just focus on what they did like. And also other traits are intense uh, energy. You can walk all night and talk till dawn. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, you feel elation when things are going well, mood swings into terrible despair when things are going poorly, incredible possessiveness. I mean, you know, when you're just casually sleeping with somebody, you actually don't really care if they're sleeping with somebody else. But when you're in love, you care big time. Uh, um, a real separation anxiety, you don't like to be apart. But the three main characteristics of intense romantic love are craving for emotional union. Yes, you like to sleep with them, but what you really want is for them to call, to write, to invite you out, to tell you that they love you. So craving for intense, uh, craving for emotional union, intense motivation to win this person. What people will do when they're in love is incredible. And last, but by no means least, uh, obsessive thinking. You, there's somebody camping in your head. You can't get them out. You wake <laughs> up in the morning thinking about them. You go to bed thinking about them. You are obsessed with them. But isn't this normally characteristic of the first stage of long-term love? Or did you uh, actually find people have this for like 20, 30, 40 years? Mm-hmm. I had thought 
that this would be the first stage, and so did my colleagues. Mm-hmm. But these people who were in their 50s and 60s maintained that they were still madly in love with their partner. So we put them in the machine. I mean, we just wondered what they were talking about because mm-hmm. all of our textbooks believe that, you know, this early stage intense romantic love uh, dissipates. So we put them in the machine, and sure enough, we found some differences, but we found a great many similarities among their brains and those brains of people who had just fallen madly in love. And the similarity was we found activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain that actually makes dopamine and mm-hmm. sends dopamine to many brain regions, giving you that elation and the focus and the energy. The difference was that among those who were in the long term, they no longer showed activity in a brain region linked with anxiety. Uh, you know, when you've just fallen in love, you're anxious. I mean, you know, you keep thinking to yourself, oh, what did I say that for? Should I have called back? Am I too fat? Why didn't I do that? You're anxious when you've just fallen in love. But um, in those who are in love long-term, and, of course, in a long-term marriage, uh, that activity had now uh, ended, and instead we found activity in a brain region linked with feelings of calm. So I think what's going on in these long-term people who report they're still madly in love they they don't talk about divorce. They say they're in love. They're looking forward to having their partner come home for dinner. They want to share their day. They want to go on vacation with this individual still. They admire the person still. Most of the time, they're they're crazy about them, and um, uh, they're still in love with them, and also feeling a deep sense of attachment, and of course, all the sex drive. Also, the sex drive. I mean, I think basically what we want is all three in a partnership. We want to continue yeah. to feel the sex drive, continue to feel at least episodically or periodically those feelings of intense romantic love, and also continue to feel a deep sense of attachment to this individual. I'm wondering, you did. When did you do this? Um, this 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 test. Um, we've been. I've been doing it since 1998, so okay. it's okay. been a long, many, many years. You know, this is no joke. I mean, getting people into a brain scanner is no yeah. joke. <laughs> you know, creating the what they call the protocol, the design of the experiment, uh, and then analyzing the data. I'm an anthropologist, and it's my neuroscientist colleague and friend Lucy Brown up at Albert, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, who actually uh, looks at the brain scans and tells us what we've found. But uh, it's a team. It's a team effort, and uh, we're the first in the world to look at this. It's so interesting how I think of all of these um, uh, uh, brain scanning studies that I've done. The most important to me is what we what we understood from those people who had been rejected in love. It's amazing how the the media has not picked up on that data the way they've picked up on those who are happily in love. And as far as I'm concerned. When people are happy in love, that's nice. I mean, it's entertaining and it's nice. But what's Great really, movie. yeah, but, yeah. But what's really serious is when they've been rejected in love. I mean, that's when you've got people who are stalking, clinical depression, suicides, homicides. That I think is more important data. And that's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things I want to talk about, and that's why I asked you when you had done the test, is that I think in this world, and you're, I mean, you're the you're the expert, but not in this world, but in this day and time. Most of many of us are dopamine deprived. Um, mm. I think it's be, you know the stress, the world that we live in. You had mentioned certain drugs that you take can make you dopamine deprived. Possibly the foods and the chemicals in our foods are dopamine deprived. And you had said that romantic love is very the dopamine is very much involved in that feeling of 
of feeling romantic love. Now, if we're in a society now where we're dopamine deprived, like, um, first of all, have you recognized that or noticed that or what do you have to say about that? And second of all, what do you do about it? Because we well, may, it may sorry. be in us, but we just don't have the dopamine. <laughs> I, that is really smart and really important. And actually, I did two TED Talks, and in the first one, in the 2006 one, rather than the 2008 one, I actually talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, when you take Prozac or Paxil or any of these newer serotonin boosters, you're driving up the serotonin system. And as you drive up the serotonin system, you are jeopardizing um, the dopamine system. They've got a negative correlation, serotonin and uh, dopamine. And my hypothesis is that um, a lot of people who are taking these serotonin boosters are actually uh, dampening or jeopardizing their ability to fall in love and stay in love. Now, there's an awful lot of people who actually need these drugs to get out of bed in the morning and to sustain a relationship. I'm not talking about them. What I'm referring to is uh, a Harvard psychiatrist recently said that something like 73% of Americans who are taking serotonin boosters, SSRIs, don't really need them. And those are the people that I'm concerned about because what these people are doing is jeopardizing their ability, I think, to fall in love and stay in love. I haven't done the academic work on it, but it's well known in the academic literature that that when you drive up the serotonin system, you are jeopardizing the dopamine system. And certainly our data on the brain shows that it is the dopamine system that becomes more active when you fall madly in love. And as a matter of fact, I wrote an article on this for a book uh, that was published by MIT Press. And since then, it's sort of gotten around the world, and every couple of weeks or so, I get an email from somebody, and this is the kind of email that I get. This one happened to be, I think, from somebody in Holland. It's hard to tell with an email, but he was from Holland. It was a young man. He he said he had been he, he had just fallen madly in love with a young woman. They had lived together for I don't know seven or eight months, and he was doing very poorly in school. So they put him on a serotonin booster. And um, not only did he lose his sex drive, which is very well known when you take these drugs, but he fell out of love with the girl. So he left her. Mm-hmm. And about almost a year, he was without her. And finally, he got off the drugs. And when he got off the drugs, he suddenly his, he, his feeling of intense romantic love for this woman came back. And so he, uh, mm-hmm. in his brain, and so he went off to a, a, flo- a florist and bought himself as many roses as he could carry in his arms and apparently went over to her house, knocked on the door, carrying all these roses, and said, would you take me back? I think it was the drugs. And she said yes. And so Lucky I warned... <laughs> what? Lucky him. She didn't move on. Lucky him. Lucky him. Well, you know, romantic love is a sticky substance. It's very difficult. That's one of the problems with rejection. You keep on loving the person. You know, you get rejected by them, and sure enough, you can just love them harder because any barrier in the relationship can actually make you like the person even more. In fact, I uh, what I learned from that study of rejection and love was that, um, and it was my hypothesis, that uh, love is an addiction, a perfectly mm-hmm. wonderful addiction when it's going well and a perfectly horrible one when it's going poorly. And indeed, we found activity in three brain regions that are linked with profound addiction. Wow. And see, this is what I have to ask you, though. Through your, I've got another question, but I'll leave that a little bit. Um, through all of your study, is anybody capable of romantic love with anybody who's a healthy, who would 
potentially be a healthy partner. So therefore, you know, you've seen read books where friends or neighbors who never even looked at each other that way all of a sudden said, why not? <laughs> Let's give mm-hmm. it a try. I've been through some pretty crappy relationships and, you know, we're still friends. So let's try the romantic part. And it, or for instance, if somebody's listening right now who doesn't who's with their best friend but doesn't have the romance in their life, they don't have that feeling in their life. Can they cultivate it in any way? Yes, I do. I think you can. And I might not have said that um, if it hadn't happened to me. Um, I had just a good friend, and actually I thought he was a bit of a pest. I mean, he was constantly around, and I really just wasn't, I mean, I liked him very much, and he was very handsome, and he was very interesting, but for some reason nothing, you know, and one day I fell in love with him, and I remained in love with him for many years. And so this brain system can be triggered at any time, Mm -hmm. but I think there's two things that you really ought to do if you want to... (coughs) Getting such a cold. Um, There's two things that I think that you could do to help to trigger the romance. One of them is go do novel things together. Any kind of novelty drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can help you push, can have to push you over that threshold into falling in love. So I don't mean just swinging from chandeliers. I mean, you know, taking a bike ride to a new part of town, going to new kinds of restaurants, trying a new movie, trying a new hobby together. You know, take a trip to Laos and Cambodia to see the sites without making any plans in advance. You know, um, do th- any novelty, novelty, novelty can drive up the dopamine system and sustain f- or trigger feelings of intense romantic love. The other thing is having sex with that individual. Any kind of stimulation of the genitals, if you like the person, any kind of um, stimulation of the genitals drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can help to push you over that threshold into falling in love. And with uh, orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin, other chemicals that are linked with feelings of deep attachment. This is why casual, and, and, and so you can feel not only intense romantic love for somebody after having sex with them, but also feelings of, of deep attachment uh, after having sex with them. And uh, this is why uh, casual sex is is really not casual unless you're so drunk you can't remember it. Uh, <laughs> something goes on in the brain, and you're either turned on or turned off. So, I guess to really stimulate a um, what you really want to do in a relationship is stimulate all three brain systems. Have sex, which will not only drive up the dopamine system and the um, attachment system, but also can help to trigger more sex because any kind of sexual activity actually drives up testosterone that is linked with the the sex drive. So have sex with the person, um, cuddle with them, hold them, massage them, walk arm in arm, put your foot on top of theirs when you're having dinner out, um, sit right next to them in the car. Any kind of touch drives up oxytocin and can can uh, stimulate feelings of deep attachment. And, of course, go do novel things together. I want to um, see if you remember a story that you had talked about in the one uh, uh, TED TV that you did. Do you remember the story of the rickshaw? Yes! <laughs> okay, I would like you to... Could you tell that story? And then when you're finished, we'll go to a break and we'll come back and talk more. Do you remember the story? Oh, of course! Absolutely, I love this story. I love it, too. <laughs> um, and Well, it's a, it's a true story, first of all. Um, or I'm told it's true. It was my colleague, um, Art Aaron. He and I do our brain scanning together. And he had a, um, had a graduate student who was madly in love with another graduate student. And they were all in Beijing at an academic conference. 
And the graduate student, uh, the man, young man, knew that going and doing novel things together can drive up the testosterone system in the brain and, and trigger feelings of intense romantic love. So he was madly in love with this young woman, also a graduate student, and she was not in love with him. So he decided that what he would do is uh, take her on a rickshaw ride. And hopefully, you know, the the excitement and the danger and the novelty would drive up the dopamine system in her brain and she'd fall in love with him. So she said, fine, I'll go with you. And off they went on the rickshaw ride. And they were gone for about an hour. And she was having a ball. She was squealing and grabbing his arm and laughing and throwing her head back. And he kept thinking to himself, this will do it. This will do it. She'll, it'll drive up the dopamine. She'll fall in love with me. So anyway, the hour ended, and they got back to the hotel, and they both leapt out of the rickshaw, and she threw up her arms and said, wasn't that wonderful, and wasn't that rickshaw driver handsome? <laughs> this is so basically, you can drive up that brain system, but you can't count on the fact that that chemistry will be directed towards you. That's very interesting. That's very yeah. interesting. I love that story. So we're talking to Dr. Fish, uh, Helen Fisher, and we're going to talk more about the brain and sex and romantic love and everything else after this break. You are listening to The Holly House Show here at A2N.FM, global news with an astrological twist. If you want to get a hold of me, I'd love to have you as a friend on Facebook at Astro Holly or contact me at hollyhall at adazen.fm. We welcome your phone call, your questions, and comments. Please call now, 815-880-TALK. Come on, what's stopping you? 815-880-8255. You can Skype us for free from anywhere. Just add us to your Skype. A2Zen.fm is our Skype name, or you can find the logo and click on it on our website. Call now at 815-880-TALK. Chat soon. You're listening to A2Zen FM, life-altering talk radio. Anything from activism to Zen and everything in between, right here and now. Informative, inspiring, engaging. Our hosts provide you with the global news and educated advice you need to make a difference in your life, in your world. Knowledge is power. A2Zen.fm Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Um, I was hoping for the What's Love. You know what, Clyde? Play What's Love's Got to Do With It. (laughs) Can you play that now? I want to hear it. Yeah, it won't play. It won't play. Okay, I, that's I've fine. I've played it over and over. Nothing. It won't play. Okay, thanks. Uh, so that's okay. guess it's not meant to be. We are talking to Helen Fisher from, uh, well, Dr. Helen Fisher. You can find her on her website at HelenFisher.com. I know that she does speaking engagements all over the place. She might be able to let you know where her next speaking engagements are. She has many on TED. TV. All you have to do is Google TED TV and Google ha- and in within the search Helen Fisher, you'll find all kinds of videos. Very engaging. I love TED TV because it's only like each one is only like ten, fifteen minutes long. Sometimes some of them are only like three or four minutes long, and they give you wonderful bits of information. She's written five books, 
Why Him, Why Her, which I want to talk about next, Why We Love, The First Sex, and The Anatomy of Love, as well as The Sex Contract. Ooh, the evolution of human behavior. Let's start with that. (laughs) When you had said earlier, Helen, that we are wanting to fall in love at least long enough to raise a child, most of divorces I find happen, including my my own as a child. And I because of that I started looking and researching like and everyone's if they're destined for divorce happens when one of their children, usually the youngest, is around the age of twelve, thirteen, which is kind of traumatic for the child because they're going through their own changes, physical changes at the time. But it seems that that's when, I think on a psychological level, either the mother doesn't feel that she's needed anymore, and so the marriage sort of breaks up, or that's when they know their kids are are fine, they're on your own. So it made me think in the evolution of human behavior, there was a time when we married at 16, we died at the age of 40, you know, we are grandparents at the age of 30. So is this an evolutionary thing that we feel that children are okay on their own at the age of 13? Um, well, it, it it could be. Um, I've studied divorce in 58 societies through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations because I really did want to know why it is that we divorced. And I really didn't feel, I mean, you know, people make such an effort to marry and settle down and have homes and families and networks and then to break up like that just seems so weird. And everywhere mm-hmm. in the world where people can divorce, they do divorce. So I thought, hmm, maybe there are some biological or, or evolutionary patterns here. So I looked at the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations in 58 societies, and I found that if you're going to divorce, you tend to divorce during and around the fourth year of marriage, mm-hmm. and um, often with one child, and often um, quite early uh, in your mid-20s, and I thought, that is strange. And so I basically then looked at pair bonding in birds and mammals. Very few mammals bother to pair up to rear their children as a team. Only 3% do. Uh, but among those that do, they tend to form a pair bond only long enough for the young through infancy. For example, foxes. Uh, a male and a female fox uh, have to pair up because the female's um, milk is very thin and she's got to stay in the den and feed those babies constantly. So if she's doing that, she'll starve to death. And so the male needs to feed her. Uh, but when the little foxes walk away in the middle of the summer, uh, the pair bond breaks up. It only lasts long enough to rear the young through infancy. And when you take a look at all kinds of birds, you know, a female robin, I mean, she's got to sit on those eggs, and she'll starve to death unless somebody feeds her. So male and female robin take turns, turns sitting on the eggs and um, raise their babies as a team. But when the babies fly away, the baby robins fly away, the pair bond breaks up. So you see this this pattern of serial monogamy, a series of pair bonds, um, remaining together only long enough to rear the young through infancy. And then it began to occur to me, hmm, this four-year pattern in human beings, um, the tendency to divorce during and around the fourth year of marriage may be an ancient strategy millions of years ago when men and women needed to pair up to rear their young through infancy Human infancy is about four years, and in a hunting and gathering society, a a child is certainly not on its own by age four, but 
but by age four, five, six, they begin to join what they call a multi-age play group. And so four-year-old, no longer nursing, can now be cared for by a seven-year-old and a ten-year-old and aunts and uncles and cousins, etc. So it's no longer essential for the parents to stay together to rear the young. So for millions of years, our ancestors probably paired up long enough to rear the young through infancy. If it was a good relationship, they stayed together longer. Um, and, um, and of course, those that did break up had the opportunity to form a new pair bond, a new relationship with somebody else, thus creating more genetic variety in their young. And you can see that today. You see a woman who said, you know, who'll say, well, you know, I really, I had three husbands during the course of my life. I had one child with the first husband. I had two children with the second husband. And I've created a very stable relationship with the third husband. And basically, what has this woman done? She's basically created a lot of genetic variety in her babies, and for millions of years, that was an adaptive strategy. So I do think that um, uh, there is but more and more data that uh, that there is some biology to divorce. This isn't to say that we're all going to divorce. I mean, over 50% of marriages remain, people remain married for life. It's entirely possible to do it. Um, but uh, around the world, people do divorce, and they do do it in these patterns. Now, would you say from your research that the 50% of the people that remain married all have this romantic love that we all seek and that you talk about? It's really hard to know because uh, there's almost no studies of romantic love in long-term marriages. And what uh, the few studies that there are are really shocking in that they are finding more and more long-term marriages in, where the pe- in which the people say, yes, we actually are madly in love with each other. So it's amazing how scientists really haven't asked. But um, I also think these people are deeply attached to each other. That's a very strong brain system attachment. In fact, I've got a girlfriend who once really summed summed it up. She has a wonderful relationship with her husband, and she said, you know, Helen, sometimes I hate him, but I always love him. And I think what she's saying is there's always that deep attachment. So my guess in the long term, really good, healthy marriage you have all three brain systems. You feel a sense of intense attachment to the person that that is sustained even when you're fed up. Um, you the the romantic love probably comes and goes along with the uh, with feeling well and feeling happy and being on vacation and having on nice weekends or whatever. And the sex drive will come and go too. But all three brain systems will will remain. Um, but got to pick the right person, and and that's I think the rub. You got to pick think, the right yeah, person. I think you got to pick the right person where both of you can be okay with the comes and the goes, the ebbs and the flows. Yeah. I, I just find with society and everything now, we have this insatiable insatiable need to have everything always. Right. <laughs> you know, we no, want to. I agree with you. Always, we want to have great furniture always we want to have the perfect kids always we want the great relationships always we want to be happy always that's why i think 75 percent as you said of these people are taking drugs that don't have to because they somehow think they should be happy or at least not sad all the time well what's amazing is that there's a whole trend these days to divorce somebody when you're no longer in love with them Mm -hmm. Um, um americans love love we love romantic love i think we're scared of the sex drive and I don't think we've got much real respect. We talk a big game for deep feelings of attachment to somebody. And we're seeing more and more marriages break up because 
a man and woman will say, or men or women will say, well, I'm I'm not in love with her anymore. Sure, I like her as a person. I'm I've been attached to her, but I'm not in love with her. We want that intense exhilaration of romantic love. And uh, geez, I hope we get over it because you know you can pick the right person and and sustain it, but it's not going to be sustainable uh, every day. As a matter of fact, in my book, uh, Why We Love, I had to explain why is it that you can fall in love at any age? I mean, why is it that older people after the age of reproduction, why why do they still have this brain system? I mean, why doesn't it just sort of, you know, um, um, decay in the brain? Why do, why do we continue to fall in love even at age 50, 60, 70, and 80 when, in fact, we no longer um, need that brain system to start the pair bond, to start the relationship? And I do think it is in part to just sustain that electricity. But it is not adaptive to spend your entire life being intensely in love with your partner. I mean, you know, I mean, in the raising of small children, you can't be racing around the dining room table after your partner. you got to have time for that baby. So I wonder if sometimes at the age of, when at the four years of marriage, especially if they have children right away, if that's why a lot of people are divorcing. Because I think the first two, three to four years of raising a child is really, really difficult on a single yeah. person, no longer two people. I think if you can survive that four years, just hang in there, Yeah, <laughs> it would get well, you better. Well, you know, what's but really... Give I, I agree with you. And, of course, you know, people are always so upset about divorce these days. But I think there's an even bigger problem. I mean, for millions of years, we lived in these little hunting and gathering groups. And a mm. child had many mothers and many fathers and many aunts and a uncles. Village. and other. Yeah, it was a village. It was a moving village. I mean, we live now in a world where it's not just, you know, we're talking about single mothers. That's hard enough. But even for a pair-bonded couple... I mean, most couples, the the parents are no longer. I mean, the grandparents are live in Florida, and they and the couple lives in New York or Minnesota. They don't, you know. I actually travel only for a week with a hunting gathering uh, group of people in Tanzania, and you know, when the mother was a little tired of the cranky baby, she handed it to somebody else who wasn't tired of the cranky baby. I agree. And with you. Mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, it's hard enough for two let alone one, when it really should be a village. What I'm more concerned about, I'm even more concerned about than the divorce rate, which is the lack of local community. We still have communities. We've got communities on the Internet. We've got a community at work. We've got communities in when we go play tennis or play golf or whatever. We've got communities, but they're not the local community. We can't hand our baby to them. No, and I agree with you. I was single, Mom, at 11, uh, she was 11 months old, and I didn't have any family, any friends. I was new, fairly new in the area. I only had his family and his friends. So when he left, I didn't have his family or his friends. My mom lived 400 miles away. Wow. <laughs> I didn't really know any neighbors. I was really fortunate to find this beautiful babysitter that lived down the street, and she, I adopted her. Yeah, like, of course. And she adopted me, and I just like, I will never forget that because she was my little, she was my village. Yeah, what little village? Yeah. And just <laughs> th- I, I, yeah, and just think. I mean, if you had had five of her in your little village, better. yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that you know we're really not built to have more than one child under the age of four in hunting and gathering societies. After a woman have a baby, they get a great deal of exercise and they're very thin. And mm-hmm. as a result, they don't tend to ovulate for maybe as much as two years. And it mm. takes them a while to get pregnant. So we're used to 
we were built to have our children birth spacing about four years apart. And you see these women with two children under the age of four or even three children under the age of four. We're rebuilt to have a child every four years or maybe even five or every six years so that we never have two children in infancy at the same time. And that's a real added burden for women. Yeah, I mean, I, I mind you, I look back and maybe that changed a bit and that would have changed when the car came in and when we were able to have washing machines and and dryers and the fridge and you didn't have to farm outside. So probably in the, starting in the 19, 1900s, many of us will remember at least my grandmother had seven or eight kids and they were back to back. Oh, yeah. Well, this it really started probably with um, about 10,000 years ago with the evolution of farming um, mm. because uh, once women began to get less exercise and have a really good food supply and put on a lot of uh, fat, uh, then you can ovulate much more regularly and have one child after another. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you see that actually in Roman times and a lot of times in in uh, in, in history. So uh, it's probably about ten thousand years old. This, this ability to to have one baby after another. But it's still sort of in our DNA, I guess. That well it's in our dna to 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 be able to you know take advantage of of take, having a lot of resources if you got a lot of resources then you're going to have a lot of babies right off the bat because it's an adaptive mechanism to have your children but um you need support for those children and in hunting and gathering societies they just didn't have enough food they got a lot of exercise this inhibited ovulation yep. and they tended to yep. have children four years apart and that that's what we're built for that's what the human brain is built for it's interesting that you said that because i was watching two shows back to back i will i anyone who knows me i overanalyze everything and the first show was a a reality show with all of these rich women and these and these rich kids who are all being raised by nannies and um, and they're and if they were raised by their mom, they were raised by their moms running around with their chick, chicken with their heads cut off, trying to act rich all the time. And then right after that, I watched a show where it was about the the projects, and mm-hmm. and it was um, in this case it was a, a lot of black people in the projects, and yet they were there was a community there. They were right. in each other's homes. They were grabbing each other's kids and watching them while they ran off and did a little bit of work or had to run to the store or whatever. And their homes were really close together and really small. And I was like, a part of me said, now wonder it's difficult for them to get out of that situation because why a part of you wouldn't want to. Oh, it yeah. They they have much that the rich do not have. Yeah, they really do have much that. The, I have uh, a girlfriend who came recently from Ecuador, and um, at Christmas she has fifty people for Christmas. Now I couldn't scare up fifty people for Christmas. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, my family is you know they live in Europe, they live all over the place. I mean, I you know I'm, a, I'm basically alone unless I have you know uh, drifters coming in for you know, uh, single people who don't have anywhere to go. So, um, I mean, there's much to be said for um, the poor. I mean, they have, they're rich in some social ways that the rich are not um, rich in. Yeah. In fact, I, I mean, I grew up in a community where, you know, everybody lived in a big house on top of a hill, far from each other. Nobody to call when you, when you needed help. Nobody to handle your children unless you paid them. Uh, et cetera. So yeah, no, I think they, I think you got a very good point there. Yeah, and I think I think if we really look at it, I mean, as North Americans, 
we, I mean, I'm from Canada, but even then, we think sometimes we forget that there's a world out there outside of us. And there's mm-hmm. a huge chunk of civilization that doesn't live the way we live. Oh, my goodness. And, yes. and you've done studies on that. So when you go to more tribal civilizations or smaller community civilizations that are kind of like it used to be in the good old days as they speak, do you find that marriage or relationships or there's healthier relationships in those societies compared to us? Oh, it's interesting. There's a, um, probably not. Uh, I, I, I haven't done any extensive work on that. It's a very interesting question. But I just remember there's a hunting and gathering society in Botswana. They're called the Kung Bushmen. And the murder rate is exactly the same among the Kung Bushmen, and these are hunter-gatherers, as yes. in downtown Houston. Wow. And because the human brain is jealous, I mean, we are get jealous. And mm-hmm. in those societies, just like in the modern world, you know, people get rejected in love. People get jealous because somebody's sleeping with somebody else. Uh, people are adulterous. You know, they've got the same sorts of problems that we do in our model, modern world. And they, um, you know, and, and they've got the same murder rate. Literally the same murder rate as downtown Houston. So right. I can see that actually now that you now that you've said it too. Because I mean there is this there is this side of us that I mean how many people probably can think of an ex that if it was okay, they might have murdered them. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, there was one guy I wanted to murder. I'm so glad I didn't do it. Because I mean, you know, no question about it. And most of us would probably like to stalk. I mean, you know, but fortunately we have enough um, uh, impulse control that we don't do it. And um, you know, I mean, most of the time when when you've been rejected in love, you want to know where is he? Where is she? What ha- what went on? Is he with somebody else? What's going on here? But uh, a person who's well balanced, uh, you know, controls themselves and and doesn't do it. And people, of course, who've got poor impulse control, get themselves into terrible trouble. I mean, the amount of crimes of passion over romantic love is absolutely staggering. As a matter of fact, I was once at a neuroscience convention and. A very well-known neuroscientist said to me, he said, you know, Helen, I wouldn't be surprised if more people die because of issues in romantic love than die of cancer. Now, who's to know about anything like that? But the bottom line is crimes of passion are common everywhere in the world. They're common in hunting-gathering societies. They're common in agrarian societies. They're common in industrial societies and post-industrial societies. I mean, nobody gets out of love alive. I mean, we all have our problems. Most of us have, have can contain ourselves. We're not so narcissistic that we that we follow people around and make life difficult for others. But we all suffer. We all suffer at some point, and we all feel the joy of it. I I read poetry from around the world, and everywhere in the world, people saying the same things about romantic love. The oldest love poems are almost 4,000 years old, and they're saying exactly the same things that our modern love songs are saying. You're right. You're right. I, I'm writing an e-book with, um, with a friend of mine on, on soulmates, and we, we talk about the, um, the old stories, the Romeo and Juliet type stories, the Esau and... Um, Oh, I can't remember the other name, but yeah, a lot of it was with the poetry, and they actually didn't have much time together, but they wrote a lot of poetry to each other. Yeah, <laughs> and it was it's it's a lot of this deep romantic um, and love, and the, like you said, the the songs and the movies that we watch. But at the same time, I think it's it's 
important for people to understand that you can't stay that high all of the time. <laughs> right. Not only that, but it's you not really, when you, no, when you realistically think about it, you really don't want to. You wouldn't get to work. You wouldn't feed the cat. You wouldn't get <laughs> visit your parents. You, you, you can't live <laughs> on three hours of sleep every night while you're kidding and hugging and, you know, skipping everything so that you can you know, come home and have a, have, see him at lunchtime, you know, it's not adaptive to have, I mean, it's a very intense state, romantic love. And, it's and then adaptive. you're going to crash and burn, right? So Yeah, it, well, hopefully you will move into a very nice, steady, solid, deep attachment with, That's the hope, with yeah. periodic feelings of that intensity. Right, exactly. And I think it's very healthy for people to think that way and to expect, as one of my other famous philosophers, Philosopher says, expect an ordinary day and see what happens. <laughs> so that's very good. Yeah, expect an ordinary relationship, and when something happens, you know it'll be wonderful. I want to thank you so much for being on the show, Helen. I've been honored to have you on. Your work is incredible, and I want people to follow you around. So, could you give <laughs> an idea of how they can find you? When is your next speak speaking engagement, etc. Oh great! Well, wonderful. My next speaking engagement is in Shanghai next 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 Wednesday. Okay, I can't <laughs> be there. Sorry. <laughs> no, can't be there. It'll be hard for me to get there myself. But anyway, thank you, Holly. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much. So you can contact Helen at helenfisher dot com uh, forward slash books. You can find where her work is. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon too. If you go to Helen Fisher, and of course, if you go to TED TV. And I'm telling you, if you go to TED TV, they literally get found. If you've got an Xbox, if you can get a hold of Netflix, I think that's one of the um, providers that has TED TV. I'm completely addicted to them. That's how I found Helen Fisher and many of the wonderful speakers out there. If you want to get a grasp on reality of what's going on in the world on all different levels, anywhere from bugs to romantic relationships, as Helen is speaking of, Go to TED TV and you'll find many speakers like HelenFisher.com. I've been really honored to have her on at on my show. This will be ready for the pod room very shortly. You're going to want to listen to it again and again because she's got an amazing amount of information about romantic love and the brain on love. You can even find other videos as well on YouTube and on her website at HelenFisher.com. So we're going to try to end this <laughs> The Holly Hall Show here at A to Zen FM with What's Love Got to Do with It? That's another interesting song by Tina Turner. Maybe not. <laughs> okay, it's not going to work. I guess I'm not allowed to have Tina Turner on my show today. Some royalty rights are keeping from me. So that's okay. Anyway, thanks for listening to The Holly Hall Show. Good night, everyone.